Happy Wednesday and welcome back. Recorded during the Plague Year 2020, this is the Andromeda Minute. Uh, each week we get together to talk about uh, the all-too-timely 1971 Robert Wise-directed techno-thriller The Andromeda Strain, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com, The Rocketeer Minute, The Airport Minute, and The Apollo 13 Minute. And I'm this week's guest host, guest host Brian Fees. I'm a uh, writer, occasional science writer, and cartoonist. I've done graphic novels such as A Fire Story and Mom's Cancer. Great, great uh, novels, by the way. I, I don't know if you can call them novels, really. You're more of a, you, with The Fire Story, you've uh, been more of a documentarian, I think. Yeah, um, graphic memoir is, is a term I've heard, but it's, uh, it, it's reportage. I look at it as graphic journalism. It's, it's dispatches from the front. Yeah, um, hopefully you won't have to do any. Well, I mean, I guess this is great material for you right now. Our current, uh, our current situation. Although I don't know how nope. mar- how marketable this would be as a worldwide phenomenon. It's not for me. Uh, I'll let yeah. somebody else tell that story. Okay, um, but we are uh, deep in minute eight here, where uh, things are not going too well for the uh, Scoop Seven recovery crew. I don't think they're going to have an after party. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we, well, we talked in the previous episode of how much this uh, Robert Wise films films this like a radio play, and, and our radio drama continues. Um, and again, I, I hearken back to Orson Welles' War of the Worlds uh, about an invasion from uh, from outer space, which I, Wise had to have known, and I, I just wonder if he was deliberately evoking it through this this entire sequence. And he had he had also directed The Day the Earth Stood Still, so I think the alien invasion is well within his wheelhouse. Right, um, right. And uh, one, of the, one of the things I'm impressed by in here, uh, we have a, a kind of an homage, well, we'll, we'll see this through the entire movie. Uh, he, Robert Wise uh, edited, or helped to edit, uh, Citizen Kane, and Citizen Kane was always known for its use of deep focus which basically means things in the foreground are just as much in focus as things in the far distance. And we're going to see, we see it here, but we're going to see it all through the movie, uh, the use of something called a split diopter lens. And what the split diopter lens, it just sounds like there's a lens that's split in half. One half, of the, one half of the lens, or a third of the lens, depending on which one you get, is focused for close-range objects. And you can spin this around to the right or to the left or top or bottom, whichever you'd like. But you get to pick half the half the screen on the left hand side of the screen will be close up, and the half screen on the on the other side will be in focus for a distant object. And we're seeing this here with uh, Lieutenant Comro uh, yelling into a phone, "Damn it, get this phone! Damn it, get this call through!" While uh, while the men are uh, seeing horrible things going on uh, in the distance, and we're seeing that in the distant uh, speaker on the wall. Yeah, and that's a choice Wise made to do that, and I just think it's so smart and subtle. It puts yeah. you in the room with those guys. And it also, as we were saying last uh, last episode, it also makes you kind of think about in your head what this would look like in a radio play. This is how I would picture things going on in a radio play. <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, and it's just it's beautiful work all around the lighting, um, that red uh, glow coming up from the, the other room from the security light, uh, that it's very much danger. And uh, there's a there's a bit of a ticking clock. The ticking clock narrative is, is used through this movie as well. And this is Comro's got to get this call through the Manchek before something worse happens. And Manchek might know what to do if he you know goes off the book. Well, there's kind of a, isn't there a literal ticking clock with the teletypes going in the background? There's kind of yeah. a tick, 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 tick that you're hearing. Yeah, there's that, that beeping from the radar that's in the uh, that's in the van that's being broadcast. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does. And it, it gives you that also that heartbeat feel, which we're, I mean, our, 
on film literature, the, the, the literature of film, usually any kind of a regular noise, uh, a heartbeat generally indicates terror. Oh, so. very, and I had that on my notes as well, is, is I love what they do with the oscilloscope in this minute because, uh, you know, the oscilloscope is our contact with the guys out in the field. That's how we see them. We see them as a, a green trace on a, on a cathode ray tube. And, and so when, when uh, the fellow out in the field screams and the oscilloscope line goes, and then it goes flat, except yeah. for the beep, beep, beep. We all know, we've all seen a thousand hospital dramas. We all know what it means when a, when a oscilloscope tracing goes flat, right? Now, that's yeah, not what's yeah. happening literally in this film. I mean, what's, what literally it means is there's no sound signal coming from the van anymore. But what, we're, what we imply, what or we infer, excuse me, is those guys are done. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're over and out. This is uh, definitely the, the Ben Casey end. Um, and... It really, if you know, you think about it, that beeping sound that's coming from the van, you should be seeing sine waves uh, at regular <laughs> yeah, intervals. That's right. On the, on the that's <laughs> true. Well, and then and then Wise does uh, something. I think it was really cool. Was after the oscilloscope goes flatline, he lingers on it for I counted. It's somewhere between five or six seconds, which is forever in movie time. Yeah. It just it just builds this tension. There's almost literally nothing on screen, and it just gets tenser and tenser and tenser. Yeah, and then you finally, Manchek finally comes to the phone, and uh, he's the guy that they called because he'd know what to do, right? Which you know we, we've been led to, and then he he starts out by identifying himself. This is Major Manchek, so uh, he he lists off what they're gonna do and what's you know what they're gonna need what they're gonna need next. Um, well, this this got my attention because he he says uh, assign Gunner Wilson if he's not crocked someplace, and I I thought way long and too hard about the crocked line because why 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 is major manchuk concerned that gunner wilson is crocked and, and to me that means because it doesn't play out in the rest of the story yeah. next time we see gunner wilson he looks perfectly sober it's not relevant except to me what it does is it emphasizes that the situation is being faced by competent people i mean after all gunner wilson is has got to be the best or major manchuk wouldn't ask for him but they've been caught with their pants down. They've, they've, you know, Gunnar Wilson is probably passed out in Poncho's bar, um, <laughs> you know, with a couple of, a couple of beers and, you know, uh, and, and it, so to be, again, this is sort of the theme of the movie is we, we're kind of ready for this, ready for this, but we're not really ready for this. And I, th- I was reminded of the Mike Tyson quote. Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, we had a plan. And we just got punched in the mouth. Yeah, it and Comro. Uh, we bring Comro into the scene, which shows that this is this is kind of telescope time. There has been things that lapped. Uh, off-screen action has happened. Manchek was called by Comro. He got down there and was briefed by him. So this is a nice compression of time, and uh, we're getting another compression as uh, as he comes out of this. He, you know, the the, the hopefully non-crocked uh, Gunner Wilson uh, gets into. Uh, gets into his reconnaissance plane and starts heading across the uh, New Mexico desert. Now, I was going to ask you, and I happen to know the answer to this because we just discussed it, but <laughs> I, I'm not a plane guy. Do you do you know what Gunnar Wilson's flying in there? Yeah, he's flying a classic uh, a, a classic of the 60s uh, and 70s, really. It's the, uh, the Phantom F4. Uh, in this case, it's the uh, uh, RC4. RC wait, RF4C? It's, it's, it's reconnaissance fighter... Uh, class C, so it's for our. I'm gonna get this wrong, and I should. So, I should have get Hal Bryan on the phone. 
yeah, it's a uh, yeah. How would how would know? It's the uh, it's the F four R it's the RC model, yeah, RC variant reconnaissance R for reconnaissance, and C is it's the C type. Uh, it's the third type of airframe that was used for the Phantom. Phantom was uh, it was a common plane uh, jet fighter. It was known as a MIG killer. It was used in Vietnam, and uh, it was the big fighter plane of the sixties. Everybody had them from uh, you know from the Air Force, the Marines. Um, the Thunderbirds flew them. The uh, the Blue Angels flew them. They were the the workhorse of the '60s. So this is if, generally if you're watching a '60s movie and they're bringing a an American plane in it, it's going to be an F4. If it's a British plane, it's going to be an Avro uh, Vulcan. But the F4 was our all-purpose fighter jet. Uh, if you could go uh, Mach two and two and a quarter, I think, um, had a, a ceiling of like. 70 or 70,000 feet. It, 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 yeah, it's a great, it was a great uh, ship. And in this, this case, they're using it as a, as a reconnaissance mission. So underneath it, it's going to be carrying a camera pod and it's going to be carrying some videos. Some, uh, he mentions he wants a full flyby and in, including a FLIR, which is forward looking infrared. So that was a, that was something that, uh, that came out in the late 60s, early 70s, built by Raytheon Corporation. Uh, my wife, my wife worked on on that program. She can't <laughs> talk about it, or she'd have to shoot me. But uh, but uh, Raytheon uh, did a lot of stuff with uh, remote sensing back in the 60s and 70s. Still do today, but uh, that that helped spot people. That that's the kind of thing when you're you know, if you're seeing Bigfoot in the jungle and you can spot him from his heat signature, uh, the forward-looking infrared uh, would be what you'd what you'd use to to look for him. You, you know, Nancy may want to shoot you anyway. Oh, I'm, every day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it also orders up a, a what a fluoroscopic uh, scan or something like that. Uh, well, uh, the FLIR, the FLIR scan is what. Oh, he's is that what he about. said? Okay, the FLIR. Yeah, forward-looking infrared. We'll just edit this out then, because it makes me sound no, like an idiot. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. It's something that the audience would ask. So that's when he when he talks about FLIR, he's throwing out some tech word, but basically he just means forward-looking infrared. They have a basically big infrared cameras on the front that. Uh, they kind of fake in the next minute when we get to it. Right. Um, but as you know, he does that beautiful, uh, that beautiful burn in there just to get the uh, the smoke vortices uh, in the background. Uh, and this is another thing that's, that's coming up as we're watching this uh, is a very, I don't even want to say 50s. This is like a 1930s thing. The uh, the classic shooting day for night, which we saw in the first minutes of this, that they're yes. shooting. They shoot with a neutral density filter. They add a blue tint to it. And we've been programmed to assume that that's what moonlight looks like. You know, and in real life, if you're out in the, if you're out at night, the uh, I'm going to get this wrong. It's the cones at night and the rods during the daytime. The rods in your eyes are built to accept color. Right. Uh, the cones in your eyes don't work too well with uh, with color, especially with uh, low frequency like yellows, reds, oranges. Um, and we're you know, and this is not how. Piedmont would look to you by moonlight. You wouldn't see orange rocks. You'd see gray rocks. Uh, but you know, we, we are programmed to, after after watching a hundred years of movies. This is how we picture nighttime in a movie, or at least how we did in 1970. Yeah, every every amateur astronomer knows the rods and codes thing. So I'm yeah. uh, I, I love that you worked it into this. That's terrific. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's uh, very true. And and, uh, and we get and, our first glimpse, our first aerial glimpse of Piedmont, New Mexico, otherwise known as Shafter, Texas. And uh, I was I was hoping to talk a little more about Shafter on our next episode, but uh, yeah, please. Well, it, we can yeah we can we can we we can bring that up in the next. In we the get next a episode. better view of it in the next minute. Yeah, and uh, it. Well, yeah, it, it's uh, it's inter- an interesting little town. I mean, I'm sure you've got a lot of lot of info about. It. I I briefly glanced at it. I wanted to visit there a while back, but. Uh, 
with uh, I have an electric car and uh, they don't have any charging stations within <laughs> 200 miles of the place so it's like a little bit out of my range oh. um, but someday though maybe <laughs> yeah. but you know just to just to kind of sum up this minute for me again um, as I said last episode for me this is about establishing the competence of the characters who are going to be driving our story for us even though we haven't met any of the main characters yet we are we are learning our way through a system that exists to keep us safe from extraterrestrial peril and uh, this is just the start of it this is the tip of the spear and these guys um, maybe aren't all the brightest bulbs in the box but they're getting the job done and and as we go through the movie we're going to meet more and more important people more and more competent people so that by the time we get our wildfire team together um, it, it's I think it's a real contrast later on when we meet the wildfire team they're not the bumbling guys digging through their desks to find the order book anymore they know what to do they're there to do it they get the job done I have a question about uh, writing writing out the uh, the side trails of this particular minute we looked at Manchek Manchek's there with uh, Lieutenant Comro uh, Manchek kind of dissed his uh, his Gunner Wilson fellow that was going to run run the thing. What words do you think he had for Comro when all? I mean, do you think that he berated him for doing something wrong or by following the book? How do you what do you think his relationship was with Comro? Well, that's interesting. Um, no, I think Comro did exactly what he was supposed to do. It's just the the rule book wasn't built to handle this situation. Um, uh, I, I bet you Comro got a medal out of the deal. <laughs> I, don't, I you know I speaking of Gunnar Wilson though I, I I couldn't help but feel a little bad for the actor whoever played Gunnar Wilson because his whole role was sitting in this pretend cockpit for probably a couple of days while they shot a you know a close up of his face completely covered and I could just imagine him saying Ma Ma I'm in this movie <laughs> and then you know Ma and Grandma and Grandpa they they bundle down to the I was going to say Cineplex not not a Cineplex in the early 70s they go you know down to the Rialto downtown and. Uh, that's me. That's me. It's, it's, it's you know that could be anybody. I'd know those eyebrows anywhere. That could yeah. be anybody, Bob. You know what? What are you doing? So, but yeah. Uh, well, he's he's the Porkins of this. Uh, <laughs> he's the Porkins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, actually but, would have enjoyed a little a little hint that maybe he was a little crocked, but uh, no, he yeah. he played it straight. He he yep. did his job. Maybe rubbing his eyes and yeah, doing, <laughs> doing it a, a bit a, a, a little Tex Avery bit there. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I just, I, I keep wondering now he's assigned to Vandenberg or I'm where, where is he coming from? That's the other, the other question that I have. I'm, I'm just wondering if he's coming, uh, up your way with the 99th reconnaissance uh, unit, which, Maybe. Uh, Maybe. our, uh, our friend, uh, uh, Ross Frankmont was, but then that would send a, they, they'd have to send a U2 and I guess they just, they didn't, they wanted something low level, which is why they brought in the Phantom. Uh, one thing I need to point out on this is we're, we usually we're scrubbing through this minute and, we, and you watch it kind of frame by frame as you're looking at it. But that that phantom is flying at probably maybe three or four hundred miles an hour. Right. And uh, they didn't they didn't rent an F4 to fly, to fly over Piedmont. So uh, they have to simulate it with a helicopter, and the helicopter is coming in at maybe maybe fifty, sixty miles an <laughs> yeah, hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which the uh, yeah the, the Phantom <laughs> would fall out of the sky at that speed. So. <laughs> no, I noticed that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you work with what you have, and then you hope the audience forgives you. Which at the time, you know, th- we had very forgiving audiences back then, and, and nobody was watching movies at one frame, you know, per minute. They no. weren't they weren't, they weren't uh, clicking over it, and they really saw the movie once, trying to 
trying to explain this to younger audiences is difficult that you you saw a movie maybe once or twice but you never got the chance until it showed up maybe a year or two later on tv and then you couldn't stop you had to watch and uh you know sit up close to the tv well you just raised an interesting question interesting as a matter of opinion uh, that hadn't occurred to me is is do you think they actually rented the phantom or do you think they just found some good stock footage of one i i'm pretty sure that's that's probably a, a stock footage of uh, universal would not probably spend the money to, to rent a phantom jet no it'd be enormously uh, expensive yeah although they may they may have asked somebody like uh mcdonald douglas if they had any good stock footage or if, if they could you know tag along on a, on a shoot so uh, many times when a movie throws in stock footage of a of a aircraft or something like that uh you know the grain's different it looks completely different and this is this marries well with the footage around it so that's why it probably hadn't occurred to me is it didn't impress me at first as stock footage but it probably was yeah the mountain the mountains look a little bit different and the uh yeah, there seems to be a little bit more more scrub on the ground, but I'm sure there's lots of pictures of phantoms flying over the desert. I mean, they were they were based all over the Western U.S., so I, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think it'll be that that big a lift for them to find to find some of that footage. And we'll get to see them reuse some of that in um, uh, about about an hour worth of minutes from now with uh, with another jet that. that falls out of the sky and then in um, several movies to come throughout the 70s probably oh no <laughs> doubt yeah never never waste a waste a moment we're gonna uh, we're gonna be seeing universal this was at its height a lot of a lot of stuff that that was used in this movie you'll you'll see another you know you'll see in like the questor tapes and things like that you go wait a minute that that uh <laughs> that lab that, that seems blinky to be thing in the background yeah 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 and it's uh and it, it totally plausible because people people were used to this kind of thing happening in in movies you know this will be on an episode of banachek or they'll be using it in uh, uh that you must have watched the old tv show search with hugh o'brien loved and, it yeah. yeah yeah well and I'm as you sure. say nobody back then was was uh, scrutinizing these things it, it flashed by in half a second and you never saw it again so uh, you know the you, you do what you have to on the budget you've got yeah uh I, i'm gonna tell an old an old man film story uh, when I was when I was in school at the University of Texas, this was before the days of VCRs. We'd have uh, film film history and film commentary and narrative strategies and all other kinds of things where we basically had to go to a go to a theater and watch a movie and take notes. And uh, the movies that they would show, the, and th- that was the only place we could watch them because we couldn't exactly you know rent something and sit home and and slow mo through the whole thing. So we'd sit in movie theaters with uh, frequently a flashlight and a and a notepad and write out notes as fast as you could about different things happening in the movie. Um, in my narrative strategies class, uh, they decided to assign a new movie that had come out, and the movie was John Borman's Excalibur. Oh, wonderful. And uh, they had arranged for us to, to go see this at, uh, at a 10 a.m. show <laughs> at, the, uh, at the Lamar uh, Movie Theater in, in Austin. And... Uh, we all walked in uh, as they were getting ready to show it, and the movie theater manager didn't know that, you know, he, he couldn't figure out why there were so many people at a 10 o'clock show of a, of a, a movie that had come out about a week, a week before. Um, but we were, we were inside, and uh, the lights were on in the, in the theater, and we were going to be writing out our finals for, while we were watching this movie. <laughs> and and uh, he started to dim the lights, and three people got up and ran in the back and said, could you leave the lights on? And <laughs> Why do you want to watch a movie with the lights on? It's like, well, because we got to write all this stuff out while we're watching the movie. And you're the only people in the theater? Yeah, we were the only people in the theater. (laughs) (laughs) 
Fortunately, I mean, I, I would feel I would feel sorry for some somebody you know somebody with a day off going. I'll go see that John Borman film. Um, but we yeah we watched uh, watched Excalibur with the lights on and uh, you know this isn't the Excalibur minute, but that's a very dark film. Um, there's a lot going on there you can't even see. Oh yeah yeah it's a uh, it was tricky, but really. At the point we were at, we weren't looking. We weren't looking at the cinematography. We weren't right. looking at the subtleties of subtleties of plot. It was more like, how are they putting the film together? I would love to do an Excalibur minute. There's so much going on in that movie, and that entire. This is. I know we're way off the. We're way off the trail from here, but uh, that entire movie was shot MOS, which is which is uh, uh, Captain Jammer kids speak for mit out sound. The the all the dialogue in it was added later it wasn't yeah. it wasn't recorded live so it has this weird feel when you're watching it but just uh it's an it's an amazing style and it it, just, it differs so much from watching this uh this robert wise film which is very i, I want to say theatrical but more like documentary it has to it has to sound real it i was going to say have... naturalistic it's uh um, yeah it, although it's it's heightened it's it's almost operatic but it's it's naturalistic it these seem like real people doing real things yeah, yeah, but a, a beautiful film. Each each are beautiful in their own way, as Ray Stevens would put it. Um, but the uh, let's let's talk about this a little bit more. We're gonna get we're gonna get into uh, the town of Piedmont or uh, Shafter as well. Let's not spoil spoil the weekend. But uh, <laughs> for folks who would like to who would like to listen to previous minutes that you may have missed, go back to uh, andromedaminute.com. We've got a whole bunch of them out there. And uh, you can find us also on the, all the typical podcast places, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Spotify, all, all your favorite ones that we're out there. Uh, if you'd like to talk back with us, we have lots of platforms out there on what they call the social media, uh, Facebook at Project Wildfire and Twitter on Andromeda Minute. Uh, Brian, people can find you a bunch of places right now. I, I By the way, I particularly like you know, your recent uh efforts here on uh, showing people how to draw things like hands and faces and things on YouTube. I'm doing a 60 second sticky doodle in which I take exactly one minute and I draw something on a on a sticky note on a post-it note and uh, it's it's really it's less of an art lesson and more of a, a one minute magic trick you know I kind of look at it like that just a little bit of entertainment so I appreciate that um, those are available on my blog along with other things I write at brianfees.blogspot.com Awesome stuff, and uh, I, you, I have drawn so many hands in the past week. Uh, <laughs> I don't know whether to thank you or or just you know shake my shake my perfectly uh, proportioned fist at you. <laughs> uh, but uh, lots lots of fun, and yes, yeah, d- definitely worth, worth checking out. So uh, in the meantime, uh, we will see you here on Friday, where we're uh, gonna fly over a small little town with a lot of dead people in it. Um, in the, uh, if you would please. Uh, Keep your hands washed, stay away from others, uh, and we will all get through this together. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next time here on the Andromeda Minute. Very flattering. We don't know much more than when we got here.